You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So the results are in. The big synod, synod? I'm not sure how you pronounce that word. I'm sure you guys will jump on the phone to correct me. The big synod at the Vatican has released its final report, and this was the sort of Catholic confab that the Pope called on marriage and family issues and the place of gays and lesbians in the church, and the results are in, and Catholic liberals were excited. Some people think Catholic liberal includes the Pope. Some of us are not so sure about that. They were excited that maybe there would be some progress, and the big report came down, and nothing, nothing. The headline in The Guardian, Vatican Synod holds its line on gay couples but offers new hope to Catholic divorcees. Bishops confirm Catholic teaching on the intrinsic disorder of homosexuality. To which gay couples responded, we intend to hold the line on ignoring closet cases, child rape enablers, and old men with imaginary friends. It's interesting to watch the Catholic Church contort itself on marriage and family issues. For those of you who are not Catholic and do not give a fuck – Well, those are two different groups of people. For those of you who are not Catholic, I will explain this for a second. For those of you who do not give a fuck about the Catholic Church, you might want to skip today's intro. The Catholic Church holds that marriage, once a man and a woman say I do in the Catholic Church, that that is indissoluble, cannot be dissolved, that that is permanent and forever. And they don't recognize divorce. And the church says to divorced Catholics and remarried Catholics that they may not receive communion, that they are not in communion with the church. They can't march up to the priest and get the wafer, can't have communion, unless they get a thing called an annulment, which is the Catholic Church's two-step, which allows them to dissolve a marriage. After calling it indissoluble, they're going to dissolve it with this hocus-pocus bullshit called an annulment. My Catholic parents, when they got divorced, got an annulment. Rather than saying this marriage has ended and these people have gone on and remarried and they're in new marriages and That might have been a successful 20-year relationship that both people got out of alive. What the Catholic Church says is that marriage never existed, that it didn't happen. It can't be dissolved because it never was a thing in the first place. That's the Catholic bullshit rationalization that allows divorced and remarried Catholics to start to receive communion again. And of course, you have to pay the church for the favor of annulling your marriage. It's a money-making racket, annulments for faithful Catholics like my mom and dad. It was weird to be the child of Catholics, very, very devout Catholics who got a divorce and got their marriage annulled because suddenly we were bastards. We four children, although the church says that any children produced in a marriage that is annulled are recognized as legitimate children even though the church is out of the other side of its fat fucking mouth saying that that marriage never happened. But these children, these Catholic baptized confirmed children somehow are not bastards. Anyway, the church is trying to figure out how to get itself out of this mess that it's gotten itself into because these rigid and jerky positions on family, on divorce, which is very common – are driving people away, are pissing people off, are emptying out churches, hollowing out churches in the West where lots of people get fucking divorced because divorce is legal now, much to the church's consternation. The church has opposed and did oppose legal divorce 
or straight people for many, many centuries, fought it up until the middle of the 20th century, opposed it, just like they opposed legal same-sex marriage. They opposed legal opposite-sex divorce once upon a time. And then there's the gay issue, right? Intrinsically disordered, the church says, gay people are. We are intrinsically disordered. You know what else the church says is intrinsically disordered? The exact same language in the Catholic catechism that they use to describe homosexuality, they use to describe masturbation. Basically, it means coming somewhere, every sperm is sacred, coming somewhere that it can't, the little swimmers can't find an egg, is intrinsically disordered. So anyway, the church condemns homosexuality and masturbation in the exact same terms for the exact same reasons, but you don't really hear the church expending much time and energy scolding Catholics about whether they're jacking off or not, or whether they're using birth control or not. The church condemns birth control, and yet Catholics use birth control. Pew Research did a big study on the attitudes of American Catholics, and there is what the church says, divorce is impossible, can't happen, doesn't happen. Uh, You may not be gay. You cannot cohabitate. You cannot live together before you get married. You cannot have premarital sex. You cannot use birth control. You cannot jack off. On and on and on. The church goes obsessively trying to regulate and control the sex lives of Catholics. And American Catholics and Western Catholics are like, yeah. And Catholics in developing countries are like, yeah, fuck you. We're going to get married and get divorced. We're going to jack off. We're going to use birth control. We're going to get abortions. We're going to be cool with our gay friends and relatives. And we're going to masturbate. And there's not a lot you can do about it. And it's hilarious to watch the church contort itself in this way. The church wants to look like it's leading on these issues, like it's tending to the flock. And what's really happened here is the flock has wandered the fuck off. The flock is like, yeah, we like the rituals and we believe in the gaudy kind of stuff and Jesus seems nice and stained glass windows are pretty. But all of this obsessive crap that you guys have been pushing for two millennia, we're kind of done with this anti-sex, anti-masturbation, anti-woman, anti-gay crap. And the church doesn't know what to do with this other than pretend that its opinions on these issues matter at all to anyone or to the vast majority of Catholics, I should say, because majorities of Catholics support marriage equality. Majority of Catholics use and support access to contraception. Majorities of Catholics don't regard premarital sex as a sin and majorities of Catholics don't regard divorce as a sin. Divorce is sad. Sometimes people get divorced for stupid reasons. Sometimes divorce happens when ugly shit goes down in a relationship. But divorce is a salvation. That's why people fought for it. That's why people fought the church and the state for the right to divorce. It's a particularly important right for women because when you were completely economically dependent upon your husband and your husband was a dirtbag or abusive and you were shackled to this person for life – That was a problem and people needed to solve that problem and people did solve that problem. Our default setting is to regard divorce as a tragedy. Divorce can be a wonderful fucking escape. Divorce can be, like I said, a salvation. And so the church is wringing its hands, wondering what to do, pretending like it's leading when it's not leading. And here it is on the front page of the New York Times, this giant story about the Catholic church and how it's going to minister to divorced people and queer people. And what's really going on is that divorced people, sexually active straight people, gay people, gay couples, we're ministering to the church. 
we are dictating terms to the church. We are letting the Catholic Church know that it has to evolve the same way Barack Obama evolved. It will evolve more slowly. It has invested a lot of time and catechismical bullshit in these positions. And this is the trap that Catholic Church finds itself in. We can change and admit that this sexist, homophobic, gynophobic, spermophilic horseshit that we've been pushing for 2,000 years is irrelevant and beside the point and just an effort to grab people by their gonads and control them and say we're going to jettison this dogma and we were wrong about this shit. Or we can lose the pews. We can lose the people in the pews. We can minister to a much smaller and smaller flock. Because when you force people to choose between modern people, free people, people who do not live in a theocratic terror state, when you force them to choose between their sexual freedoms and the particular Jesus franchise they patronize, they will choose a different Jesus franchise. Or they will choose to walk away from organized religion or religion entirely. Finally, in looking at all of the writing that the, this Catholic Synod on Marriage and Family generated and listening to all these Catholic cardinals and bishops and the Pope himself being quoted about the importance of marriage and family, marriage and family and kids and marriage and family and kids, nobody ever points out the irony or is it just too evident the irony that we are all being lectured about how to conduct ourselves in the sack and about the importance of primacy of marital life and family life and shitting out as many babies as possible by a bunch of demented old celibates and dresses swanning around the Bellagio of the 17th century in Rome. If marrying and having babies is so fucking important, how many toddlers does the Pope have? I'm not saying, of course, that the Catholic Church doesn't matter, and I'm not saying that people don't pay attention to the church. Look at the outpouring of demented hysteria. Look at the attention the Pope was given when he visited the United States. People have this affection for the church, this regard for the institution, but people ignore the dogma. And sooner or later, each of us as an individual has to call the question and whether we're going to embrace the dogma and stay in the church or walk away from the dogma and walk away from the church. Many Catholics walk away from the dogma without walking away from the church. And that's the problem the church has right now. That's the hypocrisy at the heart of the mass on Sunday. The Catholic priest looks out over the flock. He sees all the miracle Catholic families with only two babies where previously, why did they, why are all those urban churches so fucking huge? Because previously a hundred years ago, the Catholic families had 13, 14, 15, 16 children. I grew up with those kinds of Catholic families. Those days are over. Ultimately, the church is pretending that it's ministering to the flock. And what's really happening here, the reason they're having this synod at all, is that the flock has ministered to the church. They know where we are, and we've let them know where we are. And they can join us, or they can lose us. And religions are a numbers racket. And ultimately, about money and power. And they know that if they push it too far and they lose the majority of us, it's over. No more red robes. No more gilded palaces. No more Pope mobiles. All right. Sorry. Point of personal privilege to rant about the Catholic Church. I am your Catholic 
cocksucking host of this podcast. Every once in a while, I have to take a moment and rant and rave about the Catholics. Coming up today on the show, Debbie Herbenick, Dr. Debbie Herbenick of the Kinsey Institute and Indiana University is here for Second Opinion. And we have an update at the end of the show about that lesbian in Michigan with the horrible family who is trapped. All that on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old straight girl in Seattle. And I'm basically calling because a guy I recently started seeing did a shitty thing and I decided to forgive him and keep seeing him because I'm obsessed with him and I want to know if I'm being an idiot or not. So basically we um, met a couple weeks ago. We've hung out a handful of times, sort of the casual dating hookup situation. We're both in the same graduate program. And last night we were at a party for our program and he got really drunk. And then I looked over on the dance floor and he was making out with somebody else right in front of me. And uh, obviously that is a pretty shitty thing to do. Even if you're not exclusive with somebody, I don't think you should probably kiss other people right in front of them when you had already agreed that you would go home together later. So I was pissed and walked over and said, okay, I'm leaving, bye, and stormed out. We met up today and he feels terrible. Um, he's like beating himself up over it and is really ashamed and said it's really out of character and that basically he was just drunk and horny and made a stupid mistake and that he doesn't think that he's a bad guy and wants to make it up to me. And I really like this guy. I could really see dating him. I think that he's a good person otherwise. So I uh, guess I'm following my heart and decided, you know what? Good people make mistakes sometimes and uh, why not give this guy a chance? But all my friends think that I'm crazy and pathetic and that I need to stand up for myself and uh, not continue seeing this guy. So just wondering what you think. Thanks. I think the only way to figure out or to discover, to determine that this is actually really out of character for him, that this isn't something that he does all the time or has ever done before or will ever do again, is to give him another chance, is to continue to hang out, continue to see him, to ignore your friends and follow your heart and trust your gut, right? You want to keep seeing the guy. You're willing to look past this. You're willing to put this in context. You were just hooking up. It was casual. Nothing was you didn't have an exclusive agreement. It was shitty of him that you'd agreed to go home together and then impulsively, drunkenly on the dance floor, he started making out with somebody else. But people do things that they shouldn't when they're drunk and impulsive and young and stupid. I would, in your shoes, give him a pass and reassure my friends that if this is not out of character, that there will be no third chances. You're giving him a second chance, not because he deserves it, not because it wasn't a fucked up thing to do, but because you want to give him another chance. You're doing this not for him. You're doing it for you. Hey, Dan. I am a 30-year-old calling from rural Montana, and I have been in a relationship with a woman for the past five years. In the course of that time, I have also been able to come clean about the fact that like I was essentially a pathological liar for a lot of that time. And some of that lying, much of that lying really bled an entire relationship and part of that involved infidelity. For whatever reason that I don't necessarily understand, my partner has chosen to stick with me through all of that healing process and me getting help. I've been seeing a therapist and also, uh, you know, dealing with depression and all of that stuff. And I'm feeling great and really enjoying living in the truth and being present. 
and a good partner to this woman for a lot of reasons. Understandably, this has been like really traumatic for her, but it's now been a year and there was a point when in getting back together after all of this happened that I asked her if she thought she would be willing to forgive me and she said that she was. It's seeming increasingly difficult for that to happen. At what point can I really expect for our relationship to get back on track? And at what point do I have the right to ask for normalcy in our relationship rather than fighting the suspicion? And is it even a good idea for us to be together in the first place? So the problem with your girlfriend, it's, you know, been for five years. How long have you been together with her? Five years? Like five years off and on, yeah. And during that time, you were a pathological liar and there was infidelity. You cheated on her and this all came tumbling yeah. out. How? How did she find this all out? It happened, It happened. I guess it's like a little over a year ago. She was still living in Philly at the time and uh, she ran into a friend of a person that I had had an affair with. Mm-hmm. And at that point, like, I pretty much realized that, like, things needed to start coming out because I had sort of like revived the relationship under the pretenses that I wanted to, you know, that I wanted to be honest. And I think at the time, you know, I had, I had sort of thought that I could leave, leave like my indiscretions and lying and cheating in the past. But I realized that like to have a healthy relationship that wasn't going to work. You had to come clean. Yeah. So this, this infidelity that she found out about through a friend of a friend, small world, there you are in Montana fucking other people and she's finding out about it in Philadelphia. But that that infidelity that she found out about wasn't after you had said, I'm going to be a better man. I'm making an honest, uh, I'm making a, you know, I'm going to be honest from here on out. I'm I'm doing better. And then you cheated. She was finding about cheating that happened before your I'm going to be better man now epiphany, right? No, no, that that stuff had had all happened in the past. But I had sort of like resolved to be honest with her, you know, after all that had happened. And she just found out about the the infidelity it, it wasn't going on when she found out about it if that's what you're trying to think. i'm just trying to nail down that she didn't find out about further infidelities after you decided to be a better guy that no. these are infidelities no. that predated your i'm going to be a better guy get help correct okay. correct so the question is at what point can you expect the relationship to get back on track you know the bar is going to if you stay in this relationship the bar is going to be set a little higher for you uh, around yeah, making yeah. sure she feels reassured and the longer you go on not cheating on her right the longer Mm -hmm. that she sees that it's true that you've reformed that you've gotten help that you're not a pathological liar anymore you're not deceiving her you're not cheating on her the more she'll relax you know you have to she has to give you your trust at the same time that you are earning her trust and right you know she is going to require some accommodation and consideration that absolutely you know for you considering your history you know the bar will be set higher if you were dating someone new and you had always been straightforward and honest with her and you'd never cheated on her and she had no cause to mm-hmm. doubt you she that new girl might be less paranoid less less cause to be paranoid and must re- might require right. less from you less reassurance this girl if you really want her in your life you have to accept that you know you're going to have to let her know where you are that you may have to be available to her in ways that if you're dating somebody new, you might not have to be constantly available. And that scrutiny, as aggravating as it might be now, will decrease over time as she both rewards you what she can of her trust and you continue to earn more and more of it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, and I, you know, I see that happening already. 
you know, this, the, this situation is so compounded by other, other family factors that like her father was a pathological liar, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, it's just kind of, it's kind of the perfect storm. Like we're both the best and worst people for each other <laughs> in that respect. Oh my God. Yeah. You, you guys have yeah. to decide whether you're, you're, you're right for each other. You know, sometimes people are really good together and there's something beyond their control that makes the relationship impossible and who her father was is beyond your control. But, Absolutely. But she can control whether she regards you as identical to her father. She can control whether she can take responsibility for her own choice to stay in this relationship. And part of that for her is going to be extending to you, taking a risk, the same yeah. risk that anybody takes in a relationship, whether or not they have a rocky history of right. you know, in, investing their trust in that other person. Because you can't – this won't be a successful relationship if you're on probation and walking on eggshells all the time. That will just destroy Definitely. Eventually you'll end the relationship because you can't live the next six or seven decades of your life like that. Right. Right. But the right. next the next yeah. three or four years of you earning more and more and more of her trust, of her relaxing, yeah, that's what you're signing up for. Like it's not going to be six months. It's not going to be three months. Right. It's going to be right, right. a multi-year process of you really establishing that this thing her father was all his life is was a phase of yours that's ended now. Right. The onus is on you to prove that to her through your behavior. Right. Right, right. And that's going to take time. No, that, yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you calling. You're welcome. Good luck. Hey, Dan. My name is Robert. I'm a straight male. And my dilemma is recently I was invited to join a man and his lovely girlfriend in a menage a trois. The invitation was on a boat party where he came up to me and said, I love to watch, uh, which was kind of exciting and nice. And then he was very encouraging about me dancing, kissing his wife. I guess it wasn't his wife, his girlfriend. And then invited me onto their boat. And my impression was I was going to be enjoying her while he was watching. It was very exciting and fun. The problem was he wanted to be a big part of it. Uh, Then he crawled in bed, and I don't want you to think he was touching me sexually. He was just pushing me towards her and uh, pushing us together and giving us kind of instruction on what to do or me what to do and more or less direct and participate, which... eventually made me uncomfortable so much so that as we were getting towards the finale it just made me not want to keep going he was very touchy-feely with both of us and a big part of the uh, direction and almost like he was the director in a play. This ended up kind of hurting her feelings because she took it personally that um, I didn't want to continue, although I tried to make it very pleasant and just say, hey, let's have a to-be-continued bookmark here. But in truth, it was just his aggressiveness and 
although I'm not homophobic at all, I don't really get turned on by a guy touching me. So now I don't know what to do. I'd like to see her again. Don't mind if he's in the room, but not exactly sure how to tell him and her that that boundary is required. I wonder if things would have gone differently if you could have had a course correction. Had you said when he got into bed, oh, dude, wait, I signed up for you watching me fucking your girlfriend, uh, not you in bed, not you giving instructions, you watching, not you talking. So you can go sit over there and stroke yourself while we're here or I'm going to go. I wish you'd said that. Who knows? Maybe then he would have said, oh, yeah, you're right. That's another way we enjoy doing this. I will now decamp for the armchair on the other side of the room. And that would have avoided hurting her feelings. She wouldn't have felt like she was the reason you bailed or called it off, that she had done something wrong. It would have been clear that the problem was this guy in the bed touching you, even in a non-sexual way. Although I don't think that that counts as non-sexual touch if you're having sex and someone is touching you at the same time. It's sexual touch, even if it's bank touch, sexual touch. And him ordering you both around. That if what he wanted to do was manipulate marionettes, he should go to puppet school. This was a three-way or two-way, really, not puppet school. You should have said that to him. This is a two-way. I'm having sex with her. You're over there watching. We're putting on a show. No audience participation. Then I'm totally here, totally hard, totally into it. But you here in the bed, kind of pulling me out of the moment, dude. You didn't say any of that. You attempted to extricate yourself uh, without being clear about your discomfort. And she made assumptions that were not true, that you had you weren't attracted to her, that she had done something wrong. And this guy who kind of manipulated you into a guy-guy-girl three-way when what you were invited to do was a two-way with an audience, he kind of got off scot-free. I, I hate this actually that the three of you went to bed kind of under false pretenses. You were invited into their bed and to avoid – making him feel uncomfortable, even though he was making you feel uncomfortable, you wound up hurting her feelings or you both wound up hurting her feelings. This is why it's a bad idea just to jump into a drunken three-way or a drunken two-way with a, an audience if that was the proposal because you guys didn't know each other well enough and you weren't already communicating well enough that you felt empowered to call a little time out and institute a little course correction mid-three-way. Like, oh, wait, this is not what we talked about. I'm a little uncomfortable here. Can we just take a quick break, have some ice cream, and then we can dive back in once our boundaries are clearer? Because you made assumptions about boundaries. You made assumptions about what was going to go down based on what you were told on the first boat. And then things were different on their boat or your boat, whoever's boat it was. But the pooch is screwed, cannot be unscrewed. The bed is shat. Cannot be unshat. Well, actually, you can unshit about it. You can wash the sheets. Here's how you wash the sheets in this circumstance. You call him or you email him and you say, well, this is the issue. This was what made me uncomfortable. This is what I went in thinking and this is what happened and what happened I wasn't into. But if you guys are into what I had assumed we were going to do, I would be into it, which is I am totally into your girlfriend and hopefully you can contact her directly and say it was nothing about you. It was about him. Totally into her, would be happy to get with her, but you have to sit on your hands or sit on one of your hands on the other side of the room and keep your fucking mouth shut. And if that's not what they want to do, if the only kind of three-way they want to have is this creepy Geppetto three-way with him in the bed manipulating two meat puppets, they can find another dude who wants that too. You aren't that dude. 
Hi, Dan. This is a 27-year-old female from Colorado. Just got back from your podcast. I have a question about lost sex toy etiquette. Long story short, I went on a date to hear you, uh, Dan Savage, speak in Colorado and got an Airbnb and left a vibrator in it. Realized that after I got back. And I guess my question is, what is the kindest way to own up to that? I ended up trying to leave a voicemail, but then ended up texting this woman. Um, I was just worried that it would impact somebody else's stay, or hopefully she hasn't found it yet. Haven't heard anything about it. So, yeah, what do you think is the best way to own up to leaving a sex toy somewhere that's not your house? I'm not sure what the best way to own up to something like this might be, but the sex positive, no shame way to do it is the way you did it. You left it behind at this Airbnb. You sent an email to the proprietor, giving him a heads up so that the next renter, next tenant, the next guest didn't f- stumble over it and feel uncomfortable. And presumably, you know, we're going to infer since there was no response that the owner wasn't delighted to have to get out a pair of hot dog tongs and pick up your vibrator and toss it in the trash, which is probably what she did with it because she didn't feel like it was her responsibility to post it to you, to put it in the mail and ship it to you. She probably disposed of it. That she didn't write back and say, oh, thanks for the heads up. I'll take care of it. Do you want to send me a self-addressed stamped envelope with some postage on it? I can send it back to you. Is a good indication that she didn't want to handle it or that she doesn't appreciate guests scattering sex toys around her apartment in an orgiastic, self-pleasuring frenzy for her to pick up after later. You did everything right. You owned up to it. You gave her a heads up. Your host did it wrong. She should have written you back, but you did everything right. Hi, I am calling from the Great White North, and I have a genital etiquette question. I just moved with my boyfriend, and it's awesome. But he has a habit of whenever we are watching TV or just hanging out around the apartment, he always needs to have his hand not just on his pants on his genitals, but under his underwear, holding his balls or his penis and maybe playing with it in a non-sexual way. It kind of grosses me out, to be honest. I like his genitals. We have a good time together, but it's just, it's, I don't know. I find it kind of gross the fact that we can't, you know, cuddle and watch a movie together without his hands on his balls. I just want to know, am I being a prude or is he being rude? We took a poll here in the studio and of the tech savvy at risk youth surveyed two of four would not be annoyed by this at all. One of four actually was cupping their balls at the time I asked them the question. Um, I'm not sure he's being rude. It sounds like he's being a toddler. Where were his parents when he was sitting in front of the TV cupping his balls while he watched Gilligan's Island or Dynasty or whatever it was that he was watching when he was at toddler ball cupping stage? Those were the shows I was watching at toddler ball cupping stage. Sounds like someone just needs to say to him, that's rude. That Or not rude. That's Why are you holding your balls? Let go of your balls. Unless you intend to wash your hands every time you get up from the couch. It's a little weird. It's a little gross. Freaks me out. You can take ownership of it. You can use an I statement. It's wonderful that you're so in touch with your body. It's wonderful that you're so comfortable with your genitals. But I feel it's kind of squicky. It grosses me, I statement out to watch you cup your balls all through Orange is the New Black or whatever you guys are watching now. And then maybe, out of deference, 
to your feelings. He will let go of his balls. He will cease cupping his own balls while he watches television when you're in the room. Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old straight woman from Seattle, and I do not know what to make of an experience that I had on a recent trip to New Orleans. So some friends and I were out on the town, and we decided to go to a male strip club um, where men seemed to be dancing for mostly straight women. One of my friends was a straight man, platonic friend, and he bought me a lap dance um, and wanted to watch. So I went upstairs to a dark room with the dancer and my friends, and um, the dancer started to dance on me and also put his hands on or put my hands on him and let me touch him, including putting my hand on his dick so I could feel it through his shorts. There was a lot of pantomime humping going on, so my skirt was kind of up around my butt. And then he got down on his knees and started to do what I thought was going to be pantomime cunnilingus, but that's not what happened. What happened was that the dancer pulled my panties to the side and started to go down on me for real. So I was kind of shocked. And after a couple of seconds, I decided that this is not what I wanted, and I asked him to stop. And he seemed a little bit offended, but he stopped. But the next thing he did was take his fingers and put them inside my vagina and then put them in my mouth so I could, I assume, taste how wet I was. I really hate it when guys do this. And I told him that much, and he said, what, it just tastes like you. And I said, if I wanted to taste pussy, I would be in a different kind of strip club. And he said, oh, well, I like it. And then kissed me. And I stopped him. Um, And at this point, we were way past the time that he was supposed to be dancing for. And I had kind of a bad taste in my mouth, both literally and figuratively. So he kind of finished off the dance by, like, picking me up and kind of humping me in the middle of the room, you know, pantomime stuff again. Also, he gave me a spanking that left the mark. Um, And then the dance was over. So as soon as the lights were back on, he asked me to get out my phone and find him on Facebook so we could be Facebook friends. And I would not do this. I told him I'd write down his name and maybe I'd get a hold of him later. And again, he seemed a little offended. Like, I don't know why he wouldn't just friend me on Facebook. And then I left. So my question is, is this normal? Is this something that I should expect if I get a lap dance from a guy at a strip club? On one hand, I kind of felt powerful. Like if a guy got a blowjob from a stripper, wouldn't he feel powerful? On the other hand, I kind of feel like I paid to be assaulted. Like, I'm a client. Shouldn't I be calling the shots? Shouldn't he have asked permission? Anyway, what the hell do I do? Call his manager? Write a review on Yelp? Call the police? What the hell? Wow. In answer to your question, the question all of that builds up to, is this normal? Yes, it is normal. It is distressingly normative, if not normal. And I don't mean male strippers or lap dancers suddenly performing cunnilingus or grabbing women's hands and putting them in their vaginas and stuffing them in their mouths. I mean women who find themselves in an uncomfortable situation that they would like to extricate themselves from or have fucking stop who don't feel because the culture and the way women are raised and socialized, who don't feel that they can call it the fuck off, who don't feel empowered to say, knock it off. I don't want your fingers or tongue in my vagina and don't fucking hit me. And this lap dance is making me extremely uncomfortable and it is over. And you probably didn't say those things. And I'm not blaming you for what happened. 
I'm blaming the culture, the culture that carves these grooves into women's heads where even if something is happening, as it happens, they are so – at such a cultural disadvantage, so impaired by the way women are socialized to defer to men at all times and in all situations and to put the man's feelings first – that some part of your brain was just like, I can't tell him how uncomfortable this is making me because I don't want to make him feel uncomfortable. I don't want to make him sad. And his feelings are paramount. That's the zap the culture puts on women's heads. So yeah, this is normal. And by what I mean by this and what I mean by normal is a situation that is non-consensually spiraling out of control where a woman feels like she can't speak up for herself. And she so feels like she can't speak up for herself. She's not even aware that speaking up for herself in the moment is a, a possibility for her. I find this distressing. I really do. I find this galling. And I'm not mad at you, Christina. I'm mad at the dirt. I'm not mad at you. I'm certainly not mad at you. You're the victim in this situation. You were violated. You were sexually assaulted. I'm mad at the culture and the way women are socialized that prevents you from, in the moment, punching this guy in the nuts and after the fact, wondering whether you were assaulted or not, wondering whether this was a problem or not, wondering whether you did something wrong or he did something wrong, wondering whether he was doing what strippers just do and so it was normal and you have nothing to complain about because you consented to the lap dance and this is how lap dances go or if this was completely fucked up situation. This was a completely fucked up situation. I have gotten lap dances from dudes. And never has one attempted to perform cunnilingus on me or any form of oral sex on me during the lap dance. Just a couple of lap dances at Remington's in Toronto. Yeah, this is not how it is supposed to go. You were violated. Yeah, you should complain. I would, if I were you, call the manager. I'm not sure you would get a sympathetic hearing from the police. Presumably some of the women that he has busted these identical moves upon were fine with it, right? So there may have been a positive feedback loop that led him to believe this was how to get the big tips. Or he busts these moves on a lot of women and the women who are fine with it are into it and the women who aren't fine with it don't tell him. So he has a, as many men do, a very distorted picture of how their actions are being received by the people they are attempting to pleasure or please. You have a right to be very, very angry about what happened. Be angry at the stripper. Be angry at his sense of entitlement that's carved into his head by the culture and the way men are socialized. And be angry at the culture and the socialization that you were subjected to that left you so impaired in the moment that you couldn't extricate yourself from this, that you couldn't make it stop when it was clearly making you feel very uncomfortable, when it was clearly making you feel violated because you were in fact being violated and sexually assaulted. Cops in New Orleans can barely bother to not murder people themselves. So I can't imagine the cops in New Orleans are going to spring into action if you call them to say a lap dance went too far and the sex worker you hired initiated sex with you without getting your clear, unambiguous, and affirmative consent in the moment. The cops are not going to take that seriously. Maybe the manager will. I can't imagine the manager is going to take that seriously either. What we all have to start taking seriously, though, is a culture 
that leaves men, strippers and otherwise, with this sense of entitlement that they are entitled to do whatever they wish with women's bodies in whatever context they happen to have access to them. And a culture that is so disempowering to women that women in these circumstances with an entitled piece of shit motherfucker aren't even aware. That's how deep this goes. Aren't even aware that they are allowed to object or get the fuck up and walk the fuck out of the private lap dance area. That it wasn't just up to him when the lap dance ended. It was up to fucking you when the lap dance ended. So call the police, call the manager, write the Yelp review. But we really have to call. We really have to call the fucking culture on this bullshit. The script it writes for men and what that does to women and how it violates women. And how deep it goes. That women who are violated, many of them don't even realize that it is happening when it's happening. And then have to call some faggot with an invite. Have to call some guy who will then tell them that they were violated. Because this goes so deep that you can't give yourself permission to tell yourself that you were fucking violated. That's some deep fucking zap on the head shit that you've been subjected to. And we are going to have to reverse engineer our way the fuck out of this. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. And it is distressingly normal. It is not, however, how lap dances typically go. Not normal for lap dances. Normal, however, for a woman to find herself in this particular kind of a circumstance and not feel that she can defend herself or speak up for herself. That is distressingly, tragically normal. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm one of the people who uh, had subscribed to the Ashley Madison website uh, and had my information stolen during the, the infamous now hack. My question is that I am now blackmailed. Um, someone online uh, uh, demanding money where they will tell you know my family friends whatever about uh, that I was on this infidelity website um, I never actually did anything on the website other than talk to uh, some people who, who may or may not have been real uh, I found the site uh, lacking in, in real uh, you know connection with, with anyone but I was on the site, and it's a kind of thing that, you know, when my wife wasn't in the mood, I'd go on the site, and I'd kind of fantasize, and it wasn't anything that I think I would have actually done. But, you know, I was on the site, and now it's a thing of, do I do I pay this person who's blackmailing me? Uh, do I tell my wife what I've done? I, I do feel guilty for being on even though I don't, I don't see that I would have ever done anything like that you know, what do you think I should do, Dan? The Ashley Madison hack has fallen out of the news, but the fallout continues for the victims of the Ashley Madison hack, many of whom, like the caller, if we can take him at his word, weren't hooking up with anyone. As we now know, the overwhelming majority of quote-unquote women on Ashley Madison were bots and fake accounts, although there were tens of thousands of actual women on Ashley Madison. So most of the men, the millions of men on Ashley Madison never really met anybody. And a, a lot of people were just thinking about having an affair and thinking about it out loud with bots or actual women on Ashley Madison or looking at the profiles of women you might be able to have sex to if you were actually going to go through with it, which many of the people on Ashley Madison never intended to actually go through with it just fueled their fantasies, helped them get off that for many, many millions of people, Ashley Madison was a masturbatory aid, not an infidelity engine. All right. So caller, what do you do? Well, the only way that this person can blackmail you is if you want to keep this information private. 
And you can't then trust this person not to continue blackmailing you or upping the ante. And there are lots of websites with all of the Ashley Madison hack data on it. So even if you paid this person $80,000 million and they went away, that's not going to stop the next Ashley Madison hack blackmailer from attempting to blackmail you. So your only option here is to sit down with your wife and tell her. Tell her that your email data is some of the data on Ashley Madison. You never cheated. If you can still access your account, I'm not sure what's up with old accounts on Ashley Madison. You may be able to prove to her that you never actually cheated or met anybody. You can then give her the passwords to all your accounts and she can see that you didn't have email exchanges with people you met from the site. Whatever it takes to set her at ease, you might have to do. But that's the only way out of this trap. Tell your wife and then tell your blackmailer not writing you a check. I already told everybody. I already told the wife. I already told my friends and family. So go fuck yourself, blackmailer. That's the only way out. I'm sorry. We're going to take a quick break from your calls because we want to do a second opinion. Second opinion is where we invite on some other advice columnist or advice podcaster. Yes, there are others out there to ask them how they got into the advice slinging biz and to throw a couple of questions their way and see what they have to say. Joining us this week, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, and the author of The Corgasm Workout, amongst many other books, and a frequent guest expert on the Savage Love cast and in Savage Love going back many, many years, and a friend of mine, and now the host and question answerer at Kinsey Confidential, a sex advice podcast. Hey, Debbie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. So how long have you been doing Kinsey Confidential? Oh, we've, well, we've been doing it in some form or another for probably like 10 or 12 years. Um, and it started out really just as something here at Indiana University that we were offering to IU students. So like a web-based Q&A for people who had an IU you know, email address. And then it morphed into like an IU student newspaper thing. And then a few years ago, the podcast. So the podcast is a few years old? How did I not find out about it sooner? How did I? iTunes you suggested know, it to me. I didn't know. Why didn't you tell me? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we didn't talk about it. I mean, we do lots of things, but, you know, it has been largely student focused. And then more recently, as, you know, we get questions from people of all ages, I think it's just sort of expanded in terms of, you know, the age range and the reach and so on. I've been listening and there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. Some things I heard on uh-huh. your podcast I'm going to ask you about. First thing is this. This plays at the top of every Kinsey Confidential podcast. Welcome to Kinsey Confidential. This is your opportunity to ask questions about sex and have them answered. Okay, Debbie, this is your opportunity. Sounds so, like, singular. Isn't, aren't there many opportunities? Can't people find lots of places to get their sex questions answered? Or is it just Kinsey Confidential? Are you the only advice columnist, sex <laughs> advice podcast on the planet? many, 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 <laughs> many places. Then why not? This is one of your opportunities to ask questions. One of the places can, you can have I them can answered. I can share that feedback with the, with the radio station. Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I took that very personally. I felt yeah, very... They to change it to this is one of like 500,000 million <laughs> opportunities to ask questions about sex. And it's a really good one. You know, I, I endorse Debbie Herbenick's advice, but I don't endorse this singular notion that this is the only place to get advice. I was hurt. I agree with that. I was hurt. I felt I'm I felt sorry. that I was made invisible. Oh, now I know I how the bisexuals feel. Dan and visibility. Down. It's a thing. <laughs> You're treading down some some dicey some paths <laughs> there. Okay, the other thing I wanted to uh, ask you about is this. If he doesn't care how much sex hurts for you and is focused only on his pleasure, that's something to pay attention to. 
All right, Debbie, so is that something to pay attention to, your version of dump the motherfucker already? <laughs> um, not necessarily. I mean, I do think that sometimes, you know, especially because I work, you know, so frequently with college students that I think that for many people, sometimes it's age, sometimes it's just relationship experience, but sometimes people just need to, like, have a wake-up call or, like, some developmental thing. Now, if somebody truly is not going to like care and you know you try you educate you try to talk to them whatever then yeah of course people should break up there's lots of situations where you just got to get rid of somebody but I think with many of the you know the college students that I'm around sometimes they just have to have like some kind of wake-up call within their you know within their partnerships okay so that's fair so rather you know if somebody's in their 30s and he doesn't care about your pleasure at all it doesn't care that sex hurts for you he should know better by then but if you're dating some 19 year old who may be the product of a lousy sex education where female pleasure isn't discussed much less centered as the kids say these days he may not be aware that your pleasure is a thing that matters or a thing that should be present or may not know how to go about it yeah like, you know, they, they may wish they could find that. I find that some students, I mean, literally, some will be like, where is that button, you know, on a woman's body that gives them orgasms? Like, there is no there is no button. You know, it's like if you're looking for this spot or this button, it's just not as simple. Um, but I think sometimes because they, so many, you know, most Americans are a product of really lousy sex ed, um, it is the case that sometimes they're looking for these really simple ways and they don't really know how to say, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, or what do you like or what could I do better? Mm-hmm. Um, how does this feel for you? And so I think there is this real development that has to occur before people become, you know, good sex partners. So at what point for you, for this sort of situation, this sort of problem, at what point does that something to pay attention to morph into dump that motherfucking piece of shit? Well, part of it, too, I've, you know what venue I'm with, <laughs> you know, it can be <laughs> confidential. We don't, we don't, uh, give as direct, um, advice in that way. And that's, you know, that's just sort of part of how that goes. Um, you know, certainly when I'm, you know, with other outlets and do other things, I mean, there are times where I've given a lot more direct advice and, and I think in any one situation like that, if somebody, whatever it is, right, if somebody is not paying attention to you, they're not respecting you, they don't really care about, your pleasure, your satisfaction, um, how you feel about yourself as a person, whatever it is, they don't care about you in some way. You probably shouldn't be with them and you probably should break up with them. Go ahead. Say dump the motherfucker. I want to hear you say motherfucker. You should dump the motherfucker. There you go. (laughs) All right. So here we are in another venue. It's a different kind of place. You can swear here. I want you to know this is a safe place for profanity. And we're going to throw a couple of our questions at you if that's all right. Sure. Hi, Dan. I guess I have more of a comment that I want you to speak to than a question. And um, a lot of times you talk about uh, male sensitivity and guys saying that they can't feel anything when they use a condom and you call bullshit on that a lot. And um, I totally understand. I'm with you. But my thing is I am a female and I feel that way about condoms. Like it doesn't feel as good to me. I can't get off when someone's using a condom. And in fact, my partners and I have had arguments about this where I've been the one not wanting to use it because I say it feels weird. Um, So I'm just wondering if there are any other ladies out there who feel that way. I haven't really heard from many women who, who, who make this complaint. I've heard from people who have condom sensitivities, who have allergies, who find condoms irritating in some like rashy kind of way, but not in a pleasure diminishing way. Is this a thing? You wrote the book, Read My Lips, A Complete Guide to the Vagina and Vulva. Have you have you run across women like this before, Debbie? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there are certainly many women and many men who do find some sensation issues with condoms as well as other kinds of sex. 
I mean, sometimes if you're just somebody, if you're a woman who gets like really, really wet, you know, in terms of your vagina, that can also reduce sensation. So there's lots of reasons why people have less sensation. And, you know, in condoms for this particular woman, reduce sensation for her, reduce pleasure, sometimes to get in the way of, of her ability to have orgasms. But, you know, the fact that she has this over and over and over and over again um, with people who still want to use condoms, you know, it, it doesn't mean that just because she doesn't want to use them that they're off the table. And I think, you know, we would certainly, if the gender roles were reversed, we would never tell a woman, oh, yeah, well, if he doesn't want to use condoms, you don't have to either. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that safer sex is is what feels safe to both people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's having sex with people who still want to use condoms. So there's something about the situation, whether it's the first time that they're having sex or they have some concerns about, you know, whether she's got an STI or these, you know, she was talking about having male partners. So these men don't want to, you know, risk getting someone pregnant. I mean, whatever the case is, it sounds like her partners still want to keep using them at least for some time. Now that's a good and, sign. You know, when we talk about this problem, it's almost always, it makes it sound like there are no guys out there who want to use condoms. The fact that this woman is out there and keeps encountering guys who insist on condoms makes me, you know, more optimistic about straight guys in this world. Cause I only hear about the ones yeah. who don't want to use the condoms at the request of the yeah, woman. There's actually a lot who love them, you know, and, and I, and a lot of guys, um, you know, who really like them mostly for the peace of mind it gives them about pregnancy. Um, and certainly some for infection, you know, related reasons. So, you know, I hear, you know, a lot of my college students really like them because it, you know, it helps them feel like they can sort of like keep going and like get off without worrying about those other, you know, those other things they're trying to avoid. Particularly So she is stumbling upon. Yeah. I mean, especially, yeah, if if people don't want to get pregnant, then they should have every protection available to them. And so... And um, and if I may break in, like for guys, that's a... You know, you are powerless once she's pregnant. That's her choice to make 100%. And you're on the hook if she decides to go through with the pregnancy and not do an adoption. So guys should be very cautious about where they dump their loads. She may say that she's using a different form of birth control and she actually may be using a different form of birth control. But other forms of birth control like condoms have failure rates. The only way that a guy can make sure that he's doing the most he can to prevent a pregnancy is to wear a fucking condom. And then not come crying to me if you don't wear a condom and she's pregnant and she's deciding to go ahead with the the pregnancy and you're like, fuck, what do I do? It's like, what do you do is you get in a time machine and you go back and you do something different that night. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. Right now you can't do fuck all. Makes me sad when I get those calls. Yeah, but so, so you know, I think that that's, you know, that's something that that is a reality. And I mean, I certainly, if I were the guy, I would want to keep using condoms. And, um, you know, if her main issue is, well, it's harder for me to have an orgasm, I mean, you know... There are other ways to have orgasms too. And it, you know, she may wish she could have them the way that she wanted to, her preferred way with these partners. But until she's in some situation where everyone feels like, hey, we've got our needs taken care of in terms of, you know, reducing pregnancy risk or FDI risk, or we've gotten tested together, or, you know, we feel confident that we're using another form of birth control, she just may need to use, you know, like some other way of having orgasms, whether it's vibrators or oral sex or you know, or having like hand stimulation, whatever, but it might not just be like getting the sensation in her vagina from intercourse that does it for her. Hi, um, I have a question about prep for women. I've worked with gay men who are HIV positive and my best friend's HIV positive, And I've heard a lot about prep use for men, 
for gay men in particular, but I haven't heard any efficacy studies on it about for women. So I was just curious about that. I went to a talk a few years ago on PrEP when it was just starting to be studied, and the gentleman mentioned that studies were going on with women, but that so far the results weren't very good. So I just wanted to know if there's been any updates and if it works for heterosexual women who are in serodiscordant relationships. Women can use PrEP. It's, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic option for many women and for men. There have been studies with thousands and thousands of male-female couples um, in one, which one partner had uh, HIV and the other one was HIV negative. And, um, you know, it's been found to be really effective for both women and men. For some male-female couples, they even use PrEP when, like, when they're trying to get pregnant. And so they, you know, that maybe at other times in their relationship, they have condom-protected sex. But when they're trying to get pregnant, they obviously can't in order mm-hmm. to get pregnant. So sometimes people use it just during conception. Other times they use it over the long term. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely available for women, too. And it's uh, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a drug that Truveda is the commercial name. It's a drug that people who are not HIV positive take to protect themselves from exposure to HIV. That if they have a partner who's HIV positive or if they have many partners, they're not always sure of their partner's serious status or they are worried that just using condoms alone isn't going to be enough because condoms do break, condoms do leak. There are There's a failure rate for condoms, although used properly, they're really, really, really effective, but not everyone uses them properly at all times. PrEP is a great kind of a front line of defense, not a second line of defense. It is hugely effective. And the caller mentions early studies that seemed inconclusive, and I was spooked by those early studies myself. But further studies have shown that PrEP is crazy effective. One recent study showed that no one got infected who was on PrEP, who had a HIV-positive partner, and many weren't using condoms. They were just using PrEP. Yeah, I think it's, you know, early on, I think a lot of us were really scared because those of us who have been around a long time, you know, have seen so many things that were supposed to be like the next either miracle cure or vaccine or, you know, I mean, we've heard so many things over the years. It's kind of like, you know, for me, like male birth control, where like every other year there's some big thing in the news about we're going to have male birth control. It's like, yeah, sure you are. And people get excited. But this actually turned out to be something that was, in, you know, has been incredibly effective for, for both men and women. We do hear about it more often for men, but it is available for women, too. I thought we did have male birth control. It's called anal. Yeah, well, that's, that's not exactly birth control for vaginal sex. <laughs> no, no, it is not, unfortunately. Um, Debbie Herenik, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Everyone should go listen to Kinsey Confidential. They're little like 10, 15 minute podcasts. Uh, I listened to scores of them. When I found it, I wish you told me sooner that you were doing a podcast. Now, welcome to Podcastville. Thank you. And uh, everyone should read Debbie's books, including the most recent book, The Corgasm Workout. She's a research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, an all-around wonderful person. Thank you, Debbie, for jumping on the phone today. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old female, and I am currently a lactating female. And the thing is, is that since I've uh, had our child, my husband will not give me any boob or nipple play. Now, I can't understand it because... You know, it's what they were made for, yes. But still, I mean, he won't grab them, pinch them, bite them, lick them, nothing. And if I do it myself, and God forbid it accidentally squirts him a little bit, he kind of freaks out. It's like, dude, you know, give it up. 
I swallow, you swallow. It's only fair, right? So tell me, am I being too nonchalant and tell you know, just tell them to get over it and enjoy the goodness? Or should I just give it up until we wean? Twenty five years I've been writing sex advice to Savage Love. I don't know. It feels like 8,000 years I've been doing the Savage Love cast, but it's only been six, seven years doing the Savage Love cast. And I have never received this question before. And I'm actually shocked by that. And this has occurred to me in the past when people have small children and it's a straight couple, maybe even a straight couple that I know and I know that they're breastfeeding. And I wonder, when they have sex, does he drink her milk? And But nobody talks about it, right? Nobody really talks about it. What you hear typically when a woman is breastfeeding and has young children is that they're basically not having sex. And the last thing she wants is her husband touching her after she has been physically available to this hungry child all day. She doesn't want to make herself physically available to the hungry adult child that is her husband necessarily at the end of the day. You don't really hear this side of it. You don't get this question. I don't. I haven't ever received this question. And I have to say, I don't really want to think about it. <laughs> I have to say, it kind of squicks me out. You know, women's bodies are awesome, but for me, they are eternally the body of the other. Little boys all think little girls' bodies are, ew, yuck, girls, girl germs. And then little straight boys hit puberty and little bisexual boys hit puberty and they get the fuck over it. And they're like, ah, girl bodies. Can't wait to shove my face back into one. How far up a vaginal canal can I return my face, Right. But little gay boys, we don't – we hit puberty on that body. The other thing for most of us kind of stays in force. Like women's bodies are aesthetically beautiful. I get it. Vulvas, awesome. I get it. The things women's bodies do, yeah, I don't – you know, I, I get it intellectually. But if I were your husband, I would probably be avoiding your tits right now too. If I were your husband, I would be avoiding – all sorts of things, not just your tits. But if, you know, Terry, my husband, if his body suddenly started leaking a brand new fluid that it had never leaked before, I'm not sure I would be lapping it up despite the fact that I've lapped up just about every other. So I can understand where your husband's coming from and might want to wait until your tits return to their dry selves, their non-lactating pre-baby state before he starts engaging in nipple play again with you, his wife. I can understand where he's coming from. I can also understand your frustration if nipple play is important to your sexual pleasure. There are some people who can't climax without nipple play, men and women. So to suddenly be denied nipple play because your husband is squicked out by this new thing that your body is doing in part because – or large part because you and your husband did this thing you both wanted to do together and having a baby, I can understand that why that would frustrate you, particularly if nipple play is central and important. I'm punting on this one. I'm not sure what my advice would be. A couple of sandwich bags? I don't know. But this is one of those problems that solves itself in time. I would hate to see you wean your baby too soon, but I wouldn't fault you for it. If you were on an accelerated weaning schedule so you get your sex life back on track. All right, I took a little break. We turned off the microphone. I left the room. I found someone that I personally know, got her on the phone, who is breastfeeding at this moment. And I discussed this with her. And she acquainted me with some of the realities of breastfeeding, including what's known as the latch, which is the infant really has to suck and suck powerfully for the milk to come out. She also told me that your body knows what's going on. It knows when you're having sex and it knows when you are breastfeeding and those are two different 
things that your body knows and that breasts during breastfeeding, I now know, aren't open taps and that perhaps your husband is being a little unrealistically squicky if he thinks he can't touch your breasts at all without there being milk that leaks. And so he should man up, ovary up, and re-engage with your fun bag slash milk bags immediately. And that is an order from me who will never find himself in a similar circumstance ever in his entire life. Good luck. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 25-year-old female in Oakland, California, um, bisexual. And I'm calling because I'm in a long-term, or I guess three-year monogamous relationship with a lovely man, lots of fantastic sex. And lately, we've been talking about exploring some monogamishness and incorporating um, maybe another woman, a threesome into our sex life. And the other night, we were talking about our fantasies of like what that might look like or what we think about when we think about threesomes. And something that he mentioned is like, like, like watching his dick go in and out of and between like me and this other girl, this hypothetical other girl who doesn't exist yet. Um, and just, and some other, I don't know. I feel like some like cock worshipy kind of stuff that just feels in hearing it. It just feels like typical I don't know. Basically, where I'm coming from, it's like, I want to share this special bisexual part of myself with my partner and, like, eat some pussy and roll around and have fun. And I know it's stuff we can negotiate, but I'm like, am I playing into his, like, male three-way fantasy, like, typical straight dude getting off on, like, just two chicks hooking up? And I don't really think that about him. He's, like I said, a fantastic, like, feminist, open-minded man, but... I don't quite know how to get over this hump of my own, which is that, like, I don't want to be that, like, hot girl object lesbian thing. I just want to be me. So you're open to having a three-way with your wonderful feminist boyfriend on the condition that he not enjoy it the way guys tend to enjoy three-ways with two women. And the way he framed it wasn't the sort of typical hot girl object lesbian thing. It was not about watching you and this other girl get together. It was more about being able to take his cocky pleasure with both of you. So in one sense, that's not, it's atypical, right? Usually the objection that a lot of uh, bi girls with straight boyfriends have to that first three-way is that he just wants the lesbian show to happen for him so he can stroke it and watch. And he's kind of not into that or that's not his chief thing. His chief thing sounds like – awesome. I get to have sex with two women the way I have sex with one woman, which is with my dick. I wonder if he had said to you, what I'm most looking forward to is just watching you get on with this other girl and how hot that's going to be and watching you eat pussy. And that's going to make me so hot and hard. If you wouldn't be faulting him for that too, if you wouldn't be calling in and saying, he just wants the hot girl object lesbian thing played out in front of him. That's what you actually said. You were worried he wanted the hot girl object lesbian thing played out in front of him. But that's not what he said he wanted. What he said he wanted was two women, one dick. Two girls, one dork, right? 
I think you should have a little conversation with him and not with me necessarily and my listeners. And you should set your boundaries that you want this to be a mutual romp and not his dick as the pivot point, right? That his dick is not like some Renaissance painting. All the perspective isn't going right to his dick at the center of it. That this is about the three of you and mutual pleasure and a romp and rolling around. That said, three ways do become briefly. It is impossible to avoid. So if you can't handle this, don't do three ways. Three ways do sometimes briefly become two ways where somebody is orbiting and then coming back into it. But during that brief orbit, it can momentarily be a two way. So there may be times when it is about his dick and the other girl and then about his dick and you and then about you and the other girl without his dick and hopefully he has other erogenous zones that as a feminist man he's plugged into so it doesn't always have to be his dick when he's involved. But you got to be down with that. And as a guy with a dick, I wouldn't feel comfortable at a three-way where if the focus was on my dick or I wanted the focus on my dick briefly, I would feel I had violated someone or violated the terms of this three-way. So he has to feel empowered too to bring to the table the tools he has at his disposal and to advocate for his own pleasure at the same time that he is creating space for you and this other woman to advocate for your pleasure. And I think that's already the default setting in your relationship. If you've been with this guy three years and the sex is great and you regard him despite all the fucking, you know, knowing him this well, you regard him as a feminist man. But set boundaries, set clear boundaries. We had the call earlier where the two, three people had a three-way without setting clear boundaries. Clear boundaries, including what's allowed, what's not allowed. Maybe if you could have this three-way, the first time it can be no penetration three-way where it's just oral and manual stimulation and that will decenter his dick to a great extent because then vaginal intercourse isn't the star of the opposite sex show as it all too often is, but also be sure to include when you're setting boundaries and terms, the timeout rule that anybody can call a brief break, that if anybody's feeling uncomfortable and wants a reset or just wants a convo and a scoop of ice cream, you can take a brief break and discuss without recrimination because everybody has the right to call a break and nobody's allowed to be angry if somebody calls a break, discuss without any recrimination or finger pointing what kind of pulled you out of it at that moment and what you need either or both of the people you're messing around with to do to pull you back into it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old bisexual female uh, calling with a question about pegging. Uh, my boyfriend of about two years has recently expressed an interest in exploring this, you know, being the GGG woman that I am. I, we recently, you know, purchased a, uh, a starter kit. Um, it's kind of been in the box for a few weeks. Um, he hasn't initiated, nor have I. Um, just wondering if you have any advice as to, I'm, you know, I'm afraid to initiate it just because it's something that we've never done before and he's never done. So um, he knows that he's interested in it, but doesn't know if he'll enjoy it. And just, you know, I just want to get your feedback as to, um, kind of, you know, point pointers for, for beginning peggers. So your boyfriend wants you to fuck him and he probably is waiting for you to initiate that because he wants to, in some ways, you know, invert what is typical gender wise, male, female wise, that it's usually 
in the cliche, it's the man who initiates, it's the man who fucks, it's the man who asks, the man who demands. And he wants you to kind of play that male role. So he knows that you have this dick in a drawer and that he, and he knows that you know that he wants you to fuck his ass. And so he's waiting daintily perched on the edge of the sofa in his crinoline skirt waiting for you to do it. And that has, you know, that puts the zap on your head. That turns everything upside down. That flips over the tables. That leaves you probably feeling that the stakes are high. That You know, you have a bad case of pegging performance anxiety, which is a thing. Particularly when people who've never done this before, any sort of ass play before, uh, expect that they have to go from zero to 60 minutes of ass fucking in three seconds. That's the mistake you're making. That you went and got a dick strap on deck to fuck your boyfriend's ass. And that is going to be your first ass play with your boyfriend. That's the mistake. That's the mistake that is leaving you. That's incapacitating you. You need to begin with some baby steps, fingers, tongues. If you can rim, if you're into that, do it in the shower, finger, tongues, toys, some low stakes, easier, lower bar ass play before you get to fucking fucking. You will work your way up to, so say to your boyfriend, break the fucking ice, the frozen lake of lube in front of you, break that ice and say, we got the dildo, we got the strap on, we're going to have to make the time, but the first time I play with your butt, let's, you know, I got a couple of small butt plugs and I got some lube and we got a vibrating egg and let's try those things first, just so the first time that it's on me to fuck you is not the first time anything like that has ever happened near your ass so i don't have to be worried that this isn't a source of pleasure for you let him demonstrate to you you need to see with your own eyes that incorporating his asshole into your sex play is good for him and fun for him and then work your way up to that strap on and here's how you initiate that conversation leave the strap on on the bed just get it out of the box wherever it is wherever you've tucked it away make the bed and leave it on his pillow because then you're gonna have to fucking talk about it Conversation will be initiated by presence of strap-on dildo in bedroom and then say, I'm not saying I want to do this right now, but we got to do this sometime. Let's hear. Then you bust out the surprise gift of a tiny butt plug. Let's try this. Not a finger-shaped butt plug because those will, those will fly out of your ass, but wide enough for his sphincters to close around and clench. That butt plug, because you can set it and forget it. Just put it in his butt and then have the sex you normally have knowing that Butts are now engaged or his butt is now engaged and then work your way up to that dildo. And the first time you use that dildo that you got for pegging, you can use it with your hand, right? Just experiment with his butt. See if the dildo you got is right for him, feels good in him, that he likes it and work your way up to strapping it on and driving it home. On last week's show, uh, I answered a call. I actually returned a call to a 20 year old lesbian who had come out to her family and her family was being just horrifyingly abusive and she was getting some help. She had a therapist who was on her side, but she had been thinking about suicide and just incredibly depressed and at a loss for what to do next. And I got around the phone and we talked for a long time and there has been such an outpouring of concern, compassion, love and support offers. People want to donate money. People want to donate a, a place to live. People wanted to help. Um, we've been forwarding those calls, many of them, and many of the emails we've been receiving to that 20-year-old kid in Michigan. And here's a selection of the advice that our listeners had for her and we're sharing it, uh, not just with her, but with 
other people out there who may be in similar circumstances. Girl, you're just starting your life. It is going to get better. You've got this. Go out there in the world and see the world. And I remember the first time that I stepped out and was who I was completely and without fear. And that first breath of freedom is probably one of the most precious things you'll ever have. Uh, I have a beautiful cat family of two in my beautiful apartment with my beautiful friends that are completely supportive of me. I have a job that is amazing, and I eventually have now parents that love and support me. So, yeah, good luck, and go attack the world, and and get it, because there's nothing wrong with you. You are beautiful. And I would just like to say, she can come move in with me. I live in Columbus, Ohio. I have three children. My 13-year-old daughter has known she is gay for at least a year or two, and I can no more imagine not giving any child of mine unconditional love and support and embracing them for everything that they are. And it just breaks my heart. By all means, I've got a big house. She can come stay with me and be surrounded with love and acceptance. And I wanted to tell her that I'm her 20 years later. And when I was the same age, I came out to my parents and they kicked me out of the house. It was awful. It was awful. And 20 years later, my parents both just walked me down the aisle. So I want her to know that it totally gets better and that you're absolutely right. Get the hell away. And they will come around. Take up your friend's offer. Go to St. Louis. Get out of there. I promise you we have a wonderful community here of LGBT, positive, sex positive, alt, accepting people. You will find what you need. Get out of there. Come to here or any other safe place. Do it as soon as possible. Here's a big virtual bear hug all the way from Berlin, where I live with my little family and where our lesbian, gay, and queer friends live openly and joyfully. I can only hope that Michigan and the rest of the world will look like that someday, too. Dan's right, of course. Your parents are being assholes, and you need to get out and get far away from them. They have been brainwashed, whether willfully or not, by a monotheistic, dogmatic, and bullshit religious philosophy that puts promises of eternity above acceptance and love. When I look at my infant daughter, I can't imagine putting anything above her well-being. That being said, just because they're being assholes doesn't mean they're not the same people who kissed you goodnight, who massaged your shoulders when you were sick, who sang silly songs to you, and who held your hand when you were scared of monsters. There's still those people, too, somewhere deep down. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's okay to feel sad and conflicted and to still love them and feel loyal to them, even as the door slams in their faces. You will find a new family and be stronger for this experience, I promise. One thing that might help is most colleges do have a process where you can declare yourself an independent student, where you're not getting resources from your parents, even if you're at the age where you normally would be. Um, and that usually opens up uh, f uh, more finances and aid that wouldn't otherwise be available. So that might be something that might help her out. My student debt has never even for a second made me feel suicidal. My family and my religious upbringing did. Why doesn't she think about becoming an au pair? She could do it for a year. I am a gay ordained minister 
So if it helps for her to have some sort of religious blessing about who she is and this idea that she's going to go to hell because of somebody that uh, that she feels the most comfortable being, this best version of herself, or realistically going to hell for the person that uh, God made her to be. I just want to give her a religious blessing. This is a message for the suffering lesbian in episode 469. Um, from all of us here in St. Louis, come on over. We would love to have you. Thank you all for those calls. And thanks to everyone who offered to send money. A lot of people wanted to donate money to help this kid out. And we talked to her. We actually got her on the phone this weekend. Nancy Hartunian, the heroic producer of the podcast, spoke to her this weekend on the phone. And she was really grateful, really overwhelmed, um, and really touched by all of these offers of moral support, but also financial support. But she declined for the moment to be the recipient of a fundraising effort. She didn't want us to start a GoFundMe page for her. She's going to figure this out. We're going to stay in touch with her. But for right now, if you are moved by her story and you want to help LGBT kids who are homeless, she's not the only one out there. 40% of homeless youth are LGBT kids who were kicked out or thrown out of their houses after they came out or were outed to their families. It is an ongoing crisis. And the caller that we called and spoke to, the, the, the young woman that so many people wanted to help, was aware of this fact, was aware that there were many other kids like her in her circumstances out there, some in much worse circumstances than hers even. And she encouraged us to encourage you to make a donation to an organization that is helping kids like her, not just make a donation to help her as an individual, but a donation that could help other kids like her. We have some suggestions for those organizations. The Ali Forney Center in New York does wonderful work with homeless LGBT youth. They also offer housing. You can find them at aliforneycenter.org. Also, homeless youth aren't just an issue in big cities like New York. We want to suggest an organization that's helping homeless LGBT youth in a small town in a red state, Lucy's Place, L-U-C-I-E-S, place.org, lucysplace.org. In Little Rock, Arkansas, does tremendous work with very little money housing homeless LGBT kids in that state, offering them services. You can throw some money at Lucy's Place and it'll have a huge impact. And two organizations working on the issue at a policy level – TrueColorsFund.org, which works here in the United States to end LGBT youth homelessness, and the Albert Kennedy Trust in the UK, which works to end LGBT youth homelessness in the United Kingdom, and they are at akt.org.uk. If you were moved by this caller's plight and you wanted to do something to help not just her but other kids like her, Ali Forney, Albert Kennedy Trust, True Colors Foundation, Lucy's Place, Make a donation to any one of those four organizations and you will have an impact. And we will be, of course, checking back in with that caller to see how she's doing in a few weeks' time. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.